is Hiva, and this is The Blush Podcast, the show where we talk about all the things that might make you blush. And today's episode will definitely make you blush. Before we get into that, I have another aura update in case anyone cares. So my parents came up to see me today, and I took them to get their auras photographed. And lo and behold, their auras actually look pretty similar to mine, but they are identical to each other, except my mom had a little more pink than my dad, but it was all purple, blue, turquoise, and a little pink really put in the same areas. It was just, it was crazy to see. And honestly, if I hadn't seen other people's aura photographs from the same place, I would think that their machine just puts out the same photo kind of every time. But Ozzy got his photograph there like over a year ago. And I remember it was largely like, I don't know, orange or red or something, you know, whatever, who cares? Either way, it was just very different from the three of ours, which are very purple, blue, turquoise. Um, But again, my parents' are identical to each other, which is, it just blows my mind. I mean, I guess you really are a mirror of the person that you're with, huh? Okay, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind you that I have some exciting news coming up. I will share it next week, so make sure to tune in next week. It's going to be a fun episode, but also you'll hear about what's going on in my life because I'm just bursting at the seams with excitement to share it with you guys. I want you all to be the first to know, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Coming back to today's episode. So today's episode will definitely make you blush. I have on my friend Green Colleen for the second time. She's the first person to come back. I mean, I guess, you know, there is Stella who's just constantly on, but, you know, she's more of like a guest co-host type role rather than an actual guest who I'm interviewing. So... If you listened the first time Colleen was on, it's episode 50. We talked about hormones. So I know Colleen through Instagram. She's actually one of the first people I followed when I went vegan. And at the time, she would post a lot about weightlifting because she's just a super, you know, fitness expert. And her goal was really to show that you can build muscle and get lean on a vegan diet, that you can still be strong, that you can weight lift. But since then, her focus has shifted a lot. So she went off hormonal birth control and went through all these things and really started to educate herself. And she is now, in my opinion, one of the experts on sexual health, female hormone health, sexual health. She has a course that's amazing that I highly, highly recommend to anyone who is on hormonal birth control, who wants to come off of hormonal birth control, who has come off of hormonal birth control, or who just wants to learn more about their body and how to naturally be in touch with our cycles and our fertility. The first time that Colleen was on, we really did a deep dive into hormones, fertility, all of those things. 
this time, it's a little more spicy. It's a little more sexual. We really talk about all the things that we should have learned in sexual education, but that we didn't. And that we hope going forward as our society is becoming more and more conscious and more and more aware of sexuality that we hopefully will start addressing. So without further ado, here's the interview with Colleen. Colleen, how are you? I'm doing so well. I I feel honored to be talking with you on the full moon. So, and this topic just feels very in alignment. Yeah, for sure. I'm so excited to have you back. And since the first time you were on, there have been some major life changes for you. Yeah, there really have been. So I actually got laid off my job of six years. I was in sales in the natural product space. And honestly, I'd been building my like side hustle business on, you know, hormone health and helping people understand their bodies better and prevent pregnancy naturally, get off hormonal birth control. But I was not planning to do it full time so soon. It was kind of like a long term goal. And uh, I did actually sign up for the sex, love and relationships coaching program, which I'm in now. And I was planning on doing that full time while working full time. But now the timing has worked out where I am doing that full time and trying to build this business on the side, which you know I'm so passionate about. So, you know, I've just taken it as divine intervention that this is you know, the focus that I should have in this moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm running with it. So it's been, it's been really amazing. It's been kind of scary. And it's funny because I feel like when you're starting a new business and I know, you know, this, but it's like, just like a relationship, it's like a mirror, all these things that you feel like you've worked through come up all these, uh, you know, limiting beliefs on like self-worth and like capability and all that. And so it's been, yeah, it's been a great opportunity to continue to evolve and and grow within myself (laughs) yeah it is like when you think of starting your own business I think everyone kind of has this vision in their mind like I'm gonna work you know the hours that I want to work and I'm gonna do what I'm so passionate about and people are gonna naturally flock to it because I am so passionate and because I do know all this stuff and why the fuck wouldn't they you know but then reality hits and you're like I don't know, at least I go through so many moments of like, no one gives a shit. No one cares. Like, why would anyone care? I'm such a fraud. I'm such a failure. And then I have to go back and be like, where in childhood did I hear this? Because it certainly isn't innately from me. Exactly. I know imposter syndrome is so real. And yeah, Mm. the the stuff that you're talking about, the things that you're you're doing, you're like, why me? But then it's like a constant reminding of like, I am the only me in this world and I'm the only one that can deliver this message in this way. So that is why, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm being called to, to share this and just running with that and feeling into, yeah, what feels right in your body. Like a lot of this, which is connected to this work is just getting back to the body and, you know, less in the mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And I will say, I think you have such a unique voice and you hold such a unique space in the internet because I think that there's a lot of conversations around sex, sexuality, all those things, which I know isn't your sole focus. You do a lot more on feminine health, but still that area 
I think that there's either stigma to talk about it. You know, there's a lot of like puritanical, like being afraid. Even I, as much as I enjoy talking about it and want to talk about it, the last time I did kind of a sexual podcast, the entire time I was like, oh my God, what if my dad listens? What if my dad listens? What if my dad listens? And then in, you know, the week or two leading up to the release, I went through so many shame spirals where I was like, did I really share like my weird fucked up like sexual interests? Like, why did I talk about this? And I was like, I should take it all out. And then I was like, fuck it. I'm putting it all out there or whatever. But yeah, so there's a lot of that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's people who I think exploit sexuality and their own sexuality as a means of getting attention. You know what I mean? Which I like, I'm not here to shame or whatever, but I think that there's just the teensiest sliver of people who are doing what you do, where you do talk about sexuality or oftentimes maybe like you might show your body on Instagram, but it's not in this kind of like thoughty way where it's like, look at me. I'm a chick who has, you know, a flat stomach and like a good body and like follow me because of that. It's more like this is a female body and there are other types of female bodies and like this is sex and this is sexuality and let's talk about it because we're all doing it. Yeah, completely. And just going back to what you said before and you sharing what you did, I I love that podcast. And like, I, I mean, this is just a classic, like across the board. When you are vulnerable. People also feel permission to be vulnerable. And, you know, I resonated so much with what you shared. And I mean, if I did, I'm sure a million others did as well. Um, Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, of course. And then just also exposing people more to like this topic. And yeah, just like bodies are bodies. They're not innately sexual. They just like are bodies. So Mm -hmm. for us to like immediately go to like, oh, this is like a sexual thing. Like, no, it's just a human body. Um, I mean, we are sexual beings and like we can show up in that way if we choose. But um, it's, yeah, like kind of what you said, it's getting away from just the immediate immediate sexual objectification, especially as women, where that's kind of just an, an immediate in this culture. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If a man is naked, it's funny. If a woman <laughs> is naked, it's sexual. Yeah. Exactly. There's really no in between. Yep. I know. That's just one thing. I mean, yeah, just growing up as like, you know, a woman identifying body, you are immediately sexually objectified and like mm-hmm. so much shame is putting on any sort of like agency or autonomy you you take over that sexuality so it's just like you know it's this impossible double double standard where like everyone else will objectify you but you can't objectify yourself in that way yeah yeah even um you know when i think back to middle school a huge problem in our middle school was the dress code because the girls myself very much included were all showing a lot of skin and then it was like well boys can't pay attention and not once has the conversation been like should we maybe teach the boys to not just stare at women's bodies like that was never even considered you know (laughs) Oh my gosh. I still feel like I I was traumatized from that like age. I mean, especially because like the trendy thing, I think we're like about the same age. It was like the Hollister Abercrombie, like low rise and Mm -hmm. like your stomach showing. And then also you can get in trouble for wearing like tank tops, but also it was like Mm -hmm. an unfair focus on girls with bodies that had developed more just were curvier. So, I mean, 
I feel like I always had like a larger like bottom half and I feel like I would get called out often for like my shorts or skirts being too short and friends that were wearing the exact same outfit would not be called out and it was like really embarrassing it wasn't like oh like look at me it was like you know you'd call in front of the room and like maybe you'd get talked to outside um but yeah I mean the same thing happened I had an experience going to church growing up where I was wearing this like beautiful white skirt that I loved and uh church had finished and this like lady mom I found out like two pews back pulled me aside and she's like hey I just want to let you know your I can partially see your underwear through your skirt and my son was very distracted the entire time you need to re you know reconfigure your uh, choices for church and I was mortified like I told my mom and I like started tearing up and like that's exactly I mean that's just to your point yeah yeah I matured young too but um on the top half I never have and probably at this point never will have an ass so I'm just kind of over that but I started growing breasts really young and it was really like just the way boys would talk about it and then also I think to me I received the message that like my worth comes from having big breasts Mm -hmm. at the time for my age and Mm -hmm. so I think I kind of highlighted it as a way to get attention and then looking back I'm so ashamed of that and I still have a hard time being like I don't know I still have a hard time not making myself the villain in that situation. Like I have a hard time looking back on that and not thinking like what a slutty 12 year old I was when I don't really, you know what I mean? Like it's just such a fucked up way to look at your child self, but that's also, you know, when teachers are like, oh my God, you can't wear that. You can't wear that. You can't wear that. Like you start to get the messaging that like, no, like there's something wrong with me. Yeah, no, completely. I know. And that's like, yeah, where the conditioning starts. It's like our bodies are bad. Like any sort of exposure of like our sexuality is shameful. It's dangerous. And Mm -hmm. that those associations carry with us into our adult lives. And, you know, we have like somatic trauma storage in our bodies. And a lot of women especially experience numbing where like, you know, in their Mm -hmm. sexual experiences, they just simply don't feel anything. And that's like a lot of like deconditioning work that needs to take place. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, I would say like maybe the biggest reason why I had an eating disorder for years was because I wanted my body to look less feminine. Like I was in such a long cycle in my 20s of restricting and then like going through phases of binging and then going back to the restricting. And every time I'd start to gain weight, it would always go to my breasts first And I hated it so much because I wanted to be like as flat chested as possible, which sounds wild to anyone listening who, you know, wants bigger boobs. And I understand that that's what society wants. But for me, it just, it gave me licensing to wear whatever I wanted because it would never look sexual. Like the more little boyish my body was, the more I felt free. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I've actually heard the opposite of that same like disordered eating, but um, like gaining weight, putting on extra pounds to, you know, feel like you have this 
encasing this like kind of like you know comfort around you so you're not like being exposed like your your body shape isn't being exposed so a lot of like overeating and binging um to just you know feel that comfort and that safety is very common as well yeah that makes complete sense yeah yeah wow Okay, so today we want to talk about <laughs> just a rough transition, but where do you go from here? You know? Yeah, sad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we want to talk about sex ed, like what we should have learned in sex ed. But before we get into it, I'm just curious, what was your sexual education experience? So... In the public school system that I was brought up in, it started in fifth grade, and I think it ended in 10th grade, but it was called family life education. And, you know, it was a very, very, like, brief, you know, focus on, like, this is a period, Mm -hmm. you will get this, Um, you'll need pads and tampons, which, you know, is helpful. But of course, there's like the whole missing element of that is the menstrual cycle and like the four phases and how to properly take Mm -hmm. care of yourself, which I feel like can extend to like your mental health. Honestly, it kind of gives you validation for feeling how you feel in each phase. Um, But then as far as moving into like the sex ed portion, it was very much like penis and vagina equals pregnancy and STIs don't do it abstinence, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So other than that, I mean, you're not taught much and I yeah, only wish that it was more pleasure focused and more logistics. And yeah. What was yours like? So I lived in Germany until the sixth grade. So in the fifth grade, I was at an international school in Hamburg. And we had kind of what was written into the curriculum, which were videos probably similar to the stuff that you saw. But our teachers, I think a combination of being in Europe and also it being a private school and just not being like a very litigious country, were felt a lot of freedom. So we mm-hmm. had a lot of like we could just ask questions and they would answer them. One thing I remember vividly was we asked questions about a condom and the male teacher just was like, here, let's let's do a little demo, <laughs> pulls a condom out of his pocket. And like they put it on a like the end of a broom and we were all like, oh, cool. OK, <laughs> but it was very thorough in that like we had it went on for a while, like it went on for a couple of months and we had pretty hard tests and we i remember we had to be able to draw and label both the male and female reproductive organs which was interesting um so but it was very scientific mm-hmm. and then i moved to the us and we did you know probably 2 weeks in the spring every year of you know this is a period you're going to get your period um yeah if you know, sex is penis and vagina, you will definitely get pregnant and most likely die of some kind of STD. And that's that. Oh, and wet dreams. There was a lot on wet dreams, which I'm yet to encounter in real life. That's really interesting. Actually, now that you say that, I think that there were actually inclusion of wet dreams in my curriculum as well, which also I feel like it just furthers the point that there's so much more focus on like men as these like more sexual creatures. Yes. And, you know, like more normalization around like their personal pleasure experience. 
And of course, there's no mention of like women in that or, you know, vulva owners. So yeah, self-pleasuring, masturbation. I feel like that's Mm -hmm. always something that's spoken about for, you know, even like little boys growing up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I will say one thing I really benefited from was when I was probably 10, my cousin got her period and she was visiting us at the time. She was a little bit older and my mom called me over and she sat and explained what happens with ovulation and you know, the body preparing to carry a baby. And then when the egg isn't fertilized, it comes out with the, what we think of as blood. So I kind of understood periods better than other people my age, just because like she sat and drew a uterus and she's like, this is what happens. And uh, so that I did benefit from, but yeah, there was no talk of really any of the things that I think should be in sex ed. So let's get into it. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, that's amazing that your your mom did that. I, I remember I was I actually got my period pretty early on in the spectrum of like when women typically would. And I think I was 11. It was in fifth grade and we hadn't even done family life education yet. Mm-hmm. And I remember I thought I cut myself. So I was just like, you know, going to the bathroom, looking at underwear and I was like, oh my gosh, like I was in gymnastics and I was like, maybe I fell on the beam. I don't know. Um, and then I like literally went over with my pants down I was like mom I think I cut myself and then she's like oh that's your period and then it was just she kind of told me like this means you're a woman and then I was just I don't know I felt really embarrassed and then I think my dad said congratulations but I I was in the car a few hours later with him and I was like you know (laughs) I just I don't know I feel like I was like being a woman like I don't know like that just makes me feel it just made me feel weird because I guess I just didn't fully understand it or what the expectations were around that. And maybe even I had that like implicit belief from all of the media exposure already of like, it means you're now this like sexual being and like that's dirty. And I don't know. How do you think would be a better way for parents to handle it when their children get their periods? Because I don't know. I, I, I haven't heard anyone who's really enjoyed the way their parents handled it. <laughs> I don't know what a good way would be. I think exactly what your mom did. I think it's always like meeting the child where they're at and kind of like sensing their comfort levels. If they seem really interested, then like maybe expand. But um, I love the anatomy and like what it means. Like it means that now you are able to get pregnant. So um and like, you know, expanding on like the menstrual cycle. And now there's four phases and it's roughly about Mm -hmm. a month and you're going to feel different ways throughout the entire menstrual cycle. And that's okay. And just listen to your body, just things along those lines. And like, I'm always just reminding them that you're always there for for further support and questions. And they don't want to talk now then they can talk whenever they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So speaking of the four stages, We did talk about this a good amount in our last episode, so I won't get too into it. But one thing I do want to talk about is the ovulatory stage and libido. So traditionally, you have the highest libido during your ovulatory stage, which makes sense because your body wants you to procreate. Um, Do you think if someone is not having a libido spike in the middle of their cycle. Do you think that would be an indicator that they might not be ovulating? I don't think that's necessarily the case. It 
probably mm-hmm. is more so having to do with um, where their cortisol levels are sitting. So their stress hormone, mm-hmm. uh, testosterone and estrogen. So just naturally testosterone, estrogen are the highest during ovulation as well. And mm-hmm. the combination of those two is actually what allows you to feel that higher libido, that higher sex drive. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could still be ovulating and just not feel as um, as much of a desire for sex within yourself. But um, yeah, I would say more so tracking your cycle and confirming ovulation through your basal body temperature is probably the best way to go about just confirming that you've ovulated or not. Mm-hmm. And I'll just share our personal stories. So I, my last time I was ovulating, I had such an intense libido. Like it was, it was like I was in high school again. I remember one night I fell asleep and I just all night was having bizarre sexual dreams. And I'd like wake up and be like, what's going on? Like, I don't even know. And I was like, okay, this is nuts. Am I just ovulating better this cycle like is this a really prime egg and so my body's like please fertilize this one this will make a really good baby like you can't miss up this opportunity or is it something else honestly I feel like I am so very much like science-based but also like just innate body wisdom-based spirituality like trusting the self and I mean, I feel like your body is so wise. That could be the case. Um, Also, I mean, so when you have like higher cortisol levels or stress hormone, that's usually like it brings down your libido, your sex drive. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, your body could be like, you know, feeling all these good feels and orgasm just usually, you know, brings down um, cortisol levels as well. So they they Mm -hmm. could all be like intermeshed and just working in your favor in that way. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But the more likely explanation is that I probably was just less stressed this cycle than in the past. That's probably what it was. Yeah. Okay. And overall, what would you say maybe to someone who, whose libido is dropping off? What are the things they should look at? So your libido is also very much correlated to your fertility and your fertility is like an, a vital sign of your health. So it really comes down to like the foundational workings of like building up your health. So focusing in on getting at least like eight hours of sleep, sunshine, exercising regularly, um, um, removing like non-toxic products from your household, um, tracking your cycle, cycle syncing, um, reducing stress levels. So mm. all, all of that and usually with that, you'll see a, a higher sex drive. Mm-hmm. What about kind of like the old wives tales or whatever possible myths, like things like eating oysters? Do you think that does anything? <laughs> oh, like the, um, uh, what are they called? Aphrodisiacs? Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, I mean, the whole reasoning behind aphrodisiacs is that they like dilate your blood vessels more. So they just allow for more blood flow. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that like you then would be able to have more blush, blood rush to your <laughs> Wow. Oh my gosh. How Look perfect that. is that? Yeah. <laughs> blood rush. Have blush. more blush in your genitals. <laughs> That's what we want around here. <laughs> just play the podcast like in between your lives. That's, that'll do it, guys. Yeah. Prime fertility right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, more blood flow with your genitals. Um, so that's that's the idea behind a lot of those aphrodisiacs. 
Okay. Um, okay. I want to switch gears to orgasms. Yes. Orgasms, lack of orgasms, the orgasm gap. You have a lot to say on this. So I'm just going to give you the floor. (laughs) Yes. So there is an epidemic in our society and it's called the orgasm gap. Honestly, I was familiarized with this through two different books, Becoming Cliterate and Come As You Are, and it speaks on how vulva owners or women have much, much less orgasms than penis owners or men, and that stems from a lot of things, you know, from what we talked on earlier on how we have some flawed sex education. It's not pleasure-based, so mm-hmm. simply we're just never taught how to experience or really own our pleasure as a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, a lot of, because we're not taught this, then we get a lot of our education from mainstream media, porn, you know, movies, shows, etc. And you'll typically see, you know, penetrative sex where, you know, the male in the scenario is the focus. And once his pleasure is achieved, then like everyone's good to go. And that's Mm -hmm. successful sex. So it's just, you know, rewriting the narrative. And honestly, I think it begins with vulva owners getting to know their bodies better, you know, having a self-pleasure practice, understanding what feels good to them, and then effectively Mm -hmm. communicating that to their partner. So, you know, everyone can be happy. And, you know, if their partner also isn't in the know that, both people deserve pleasure in this scenario. And, you know, it's, I feel like it's not blaming like the penis owners of the world. Like we are just, we've been conditioned as a whole in this way that, you know, this is what sex is. So I think it's just re-educating everyone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, emphasis on other types, right? Just things other than penis and vagina, foreplay, oral sex, things like that, which in movies, we pretty much never see. (laughs) Right, exactly. So it's something like an average of 20 to 40 minutes is what most vulva owners need to have their clitoris, which just a fun fact, um, I think I read this in Come As You Are, but the clitoris and the penis were actually the very same part in the womb. And depending on like genetic instruction, they then Mm -hmm. shift and slightly, you know, change in shape to the penis and the clitoris, but they have the same purpose and the same feel as far as pleasure. The only caveat is that the clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings, which is two to three times more than the penis. So like when people go about having sex, no one would expect a flaccid penis to, you know, be ready for sex. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's in the same way the clitoris engorges with blood, it enlarges, And also, you know, vaginal secretions, your arousal fluid comes about. And, you know, that's when you're ready for sex. And a lot of times women experience pain and just discomfort with penetrative sex because they're simply not ready. They haven't, uh, they haven't been like lubricated and, you know, aroused enough to even get to that place. So a lot more foreplay for sure is needed. And just to extend on that, the whole concept, the name foreplay would insinuate that it's like before another act (laughs) but it doesn't have to be so I think it's another big takeaway is just redefining what sex means so you can like there just never has to be any any penetrative sex at all and Mm -hmm. you can simply you know just pleasure each other in other ways and pleasure doesn't even have to be focusing on the genitals it can be just you know focusing on all your sensations your your touch your smell the sounds taste um yeah 
Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, like read if like sex. If I were to put a definition on it outside of just you know the classic penis and vagina, it would be like. And it could be just you or a partner or multiple partners, whatever your preference is. Um, just creating a space where you are experiencing pleasure. And I think that's just, mm-hmm. it can be left at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully said. So since you mentioned the clitoris, I want to kind of get into the anatomy of what we're seeing. Oh, by the way. I remember a few years ago seeing this diagram of what the clitoris actually looks like if you look at the internal part. And I was like, holy shit, it's a penis. It's a penis. Like, <laughs> we have the same parts. It's just that most of ours is internal. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad you mentioned that. So what we see um, externally is just the very head of the clitoris. And it depends on the you know, particular body, but everyone also has a clitoral hood, which is just like a bit of skin mm-hmm. that covers it. Some people have more exposed clitorises than others, but the crura or the clitoral bulbs are actually what are like internal. So mm-hmm. like kind of like right below your external labia, like the more cushy part of your vulva is the clitoral bulbs. So those also, you know, when stimulated, get aroused and you know engorged with blood so yeah it's not just that Mm. little um, I've heard people call it a pleasure pearl which I also love but um, yeah it's like a whole horseshoe shape so Mm. yeah in that way it's like yeah that's like the it's kind of like you have your own penis and balls I mean it's totally its own thing but just a good way to have people understand since I feel like we're more familiar with the male anatomy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of course yeah yeah, we see it all the time. The other day, it snowed in New York, and um, someone had drawn a penis and balls into a car's windshield in the snow. <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they're in the eighth grade, but I did laugh a lot and send a photo to a bunch of people, including my mom, so I'm complicit in this, too. <laughs> but yeah, we are used to seeing penises all the time. Yeah, and I don't know. I feel like that's almost like translated because... I just, you know, I want there to be an even representation. So I feel like I'm like fixated. I feel like I see vulvas everywhere. I'm like out and about. I'm like, that looks like a vulva. Mm-hmm. That looks like a vulva. And you see so many of so many representations, just the nature, which is super cool. And I love yeah. to make that connection. Like I feel like flowers are a great, a great parallel, you know? Like they're well, all flowers literally are, but that's like <laughs> And anatomically what they are, right? Yeah. Like the fruit is the ripened ovary of the flower. So the flower mm-hmm. is literally the vulva. Right. Yeah. And then they get penetrated by, you know, whatever bees or other insects that are pollinating them. So it's yeah. very much a direct correlation. But yeah, I think the aspect that like they're all so unique and they're all beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're all equally beautiful. Um, you know, there's not like one specific look. Like I feel like we're made to believe, you know, mm-hmm. from seeing movies, shows, porn um, of oftentimes, yeah, like altered uh, vulvas mm-hmm. that, um, yeah. And then, you know, women vulva owners think that they are weird, misshapen, and also the whole narrative around it's smelling bad, so then you're self-conscious about that, mm-hmm. but, like, in reality, they're just, they smell exactly how they're supposed to smell. It's like your, it's your breath, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
I mean, I think like if there's some extreme odor, it could be a sign of some kind yes. of infection or something. But no, they're not supposed to smell like flowers or like water. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they have a smell. They're a part of your body. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's like just just shifting your relationship to them and that like that's just yeah it's beautiful the way it is just like how I don't know the way your hair feels or looks or just it's just you know how you are naturally so just embracing mm-hmm. that and and loving that about yourself and owning it and you know I I mean I'm guilty in this I feel like anytime for a while when a partner would go down on me in my mind majority of the time I would be like I wonder how it smells. Are they enjoying this? Like, is this, mm-hmm. you know, is, are they like totally grossed out and they're just like bearing with it? Cause they think I enjoy it, but like, really, I'm just thinking about it a ton. <laughs> but mm-hmm. then it took like me shifting that relationship and also having partners that were in complete just reverence and like appreciation to like the magic that is the vulva. And I'm just like, you know, that's, it's helped a lot. So shout out to those amazing penis owners that have really uh, stepped up. <laughs> Absolutely. I never used to let guys go down on me. And then I dated this guy who has a micro penis. And I like, I don't mean that insultingly. Like, it just, it is. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also was a tiny bit famous at the time. And he also had slept with like hundreds of women. And I remember having this moment where I was like, this guy who is famous enough where any of these girls could go out and be like, yo, that guy has a micro penis and he is comfortable showing that thing to hundreds of women. And I am so terrified of what my labia looks like that. Like, I don't know. It's like this or like that or whatever. If he can own his body and be so comfortable with it that he's willing to sleep with hundreds of women knowing that it could end up on some kind of gossip site or something because he also is a little bit famous, then I really need to pull my shit together. And that kind of changed things for me. And he's like, I really respect him. I remember reading an article where it was like, blah, blah's like, five favorite things or something, you know, the magazines do these dumb things with celebrities like, oh, what's in your bag or whatever. And one of the things that he listed were these condoms that are specially made for people with smaller penises. And he's like, listen, I'm not the most well-endowed guy. And when I started using condoms, they didn't fit. So I found these condoms and I was like, this is so fucking cool. Like that's the coolest thing I've seen a guy do. Just be like, yeah, I have a small penis. And Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And I feel like in that way, he's also owning and like making known that it doesn't matter what size you have of penis. And I think that kind of speaks to also like LGBTQ plus communities, Mm -hmm. like knowing that you don't need a penis to have like a really pleasurable sex. And Mm -hmm. it's so much more about all the other sensations that are happening and, you know, how to pleasure a vulva or just, you know, other ways to, to feel immense pleasure with your fingers or with your mouth Mm -hmm. or whatever. It's, it's just, yeah, it's such a narrow way to look at sex. So that's awesome that you did that and just normalizing that everyone's bodies are different and celebrating it. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, the men that aren't the ones who are, you know, 
super excited to go down on a girl or really putting her pleasure first, I will say it's so easy for me to be like, fuck that person. Like I have an ex like that, who I dated somewhat recently, actually. And I remember at some point I was like, I feel like you don't really prioritize my pleasure at all. Like, I feel like this is very, a very, you know, toxic male situation we have going on. But I don't think it's their fault either. I think it's everything that we've been shown in media. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's on us to kind of change that narrative and teach men like, no, this isn't like we need to change how sex is portrayed. We need to change the way we talk about it. We need to change the way we speak about female, female pleasure, female genitalia, which on that note, I do want to highlight the fact that you're using the word vulva, not vagina um can you speak on that a little bit (laughs) yes yes for sure so I don't know about you but for my entire upbringing I always thought that the entire female genitalia was a vagina let's say like talk about it with your friends I don't know if I had Mm. that many conversations with my mom but definitely with friends I'd be like oh my gosh my vag my vagina my vajayjay um But in reality, your vagina is actually just that, it's your vaginal canal. It's that internal place where you, um, you know, can put a penis or blood comes out or you birth a baby. And then Mm -hmm. the entire external genitalia is the vulva. So that includes, you know, your clitoris, it includes your labia, includes your your urethra where you pee, your vaginal Mm -hmm. opening, your perineum, and um, your anus is its own thing. But yeah, that whole... (laughs) That mm-hmm. whole external area is your vulva, which I just honestly, I think I, I've become quite an advocate for s- just speaking the word vulva a lot because it's, mm-hmm. you know, just getting more exposure in that way, normalizing saying it. And oftentimes I get met with like, what's that? What are you saying? Like, did you say Volvo? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I think it, I mean, it's, it's slowly but surely gaining more traction and I think more people are recognizing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always known because, again, in the fifth grade, I had to draw and label the entire area. So I've always known that the vagina is just the canal and that that's not the word for the external part. However, I still continued using the word vagina because that's what people would recognize. And I mean, the first 50 episodes of this podcast, (laughs) pretty much I made some kind of reference to my usually to my vulva. Occasionally, I was actually speaking about my vagina, but I often was referring to my vulva and called it my vagina. So yeah, yeah. I honestly, I feel like that's just very symbolic of our just vast disconnection from our own genitalia as vulva owners, as, as women, because I think it's like two parts. It's like you know, we can't really see it that well. Like for penis mm-hmm. owners, it's just kind of like there and you can look at it all the time, but it's kind of like angled where you really have to like look in a mirror, which I highly recommend mirror work. feels scary as heck because like I said, we feel, we have all this conditioning around it. Like it's like gross or it's smelly or you don't really want to look at it. Um, but I, yeah, I feel like in that way, we're just, we don't really know that much about it. And also like the way it works and like the menstrual cycle and what's the point of menstruation and what's the point of ovulation and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So I just, yeah, I feel like us not knowing is just a continuation of that. Mm-hmm. By the way, a quick tangent. So one of my friends has a rabbit and 
<laughs> she <laughs> she just got her rabbit spade, but she got the rabbit spade kind of old. I think she's two now. And she said that she just wasn't able to before because of COVID and whatnot. And she, before she got the rabbit spade, she was like, oh, I'm so nervous. You know, at this age, it's kind of a risky procedure. And I was like, well, why don't you just not get her spade? I mean, the, what's the big deal? Like, I, I mean, how often do rabbits menstruate? Like, I guess you could just like figure out some kind of uh, pad situation. And she was like, oh, no, no. Rabbits will get cervical cancer if they're not, if they're either uh, not spayed or not reproducing all the time. And she explained that rabbits don't actually menstruate. So what happens is they only ovulate if they have intercourse and there's sperm there, then they ovulate. So because they don't go through the cycle as we do, they're very, very prone to cervical cancer unless they're constantly reproducing. And she basically explained the fact that we have these hormone fluctuations and the progesterone comes in is what prevents us from constantly getting cervical cancer. Wow. That is an incredible point. And okay. I, that's really interesting. I didn't know that about rabbits, but also I actually had a cervical cancer scare. I feel like I haven't shared this much, but in college and I was on birth control, hormonal birth control, the pill, mm -hmm. um, which I know it's actually pretty um, common HPV. And I got, you know, all the Gardasil shots and all that. But I, yeah, I remember getting my yearly pap smear and they said that my, my cells seemed a little off. So then I had to get mm -hmm. a colposcopy, which if anyone listening has ever gotten that, I feel for you. It is so uncomfortable. It's basically, they like go in, like they open you up. You're already in that like uncomfortable OBGYN mm -hmm. spread situation. And they go in all the way to your cervix and they biopsy part of your cervix. So they snip it off and mm -hmm. then, you know, do you test it? Do they numb that. you in any way? I mean, is some... it even possible to numb you really? <laughs> There was some vinegar spray that was supposed to like numb me, but it also burned like heck. So I feel oh. like it was just like a camouflage with other sensations. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was, so yeah, my, at first I was in the room by myself and then, uh, I asked my mom, I told the doctors, like, can my mom come in? My mom was with me. Uh, she was holding my hand and then they brought in three other doctors to like observe and learn, which, so, you know, they're all just looking at me. And I feel like that was like a very like non-consensual experience no. that I did I do feel like has stuck with me but um yeah so anyways I had my cells tested on the ones that were biopsied and uh yeah they said I was like in you know pre-cervical cancer stage and they need to like keep an eye on it but because I was under 26 they think it's gonna um the cells are just gonna reproduce and um it'll go away on its own but that's really interesting I mean I know that being on hormonal birth control you have a much higher chance of of um cervical cancer and i just mm. i feel like i like just made that correlation <laughs> yeah which is wild because they also prescribe it to people who have a family history of cervical cancer as an alleged prevention yeah but i mean yeah like you said before those fluctuations of hormones the progesterone the estrogen the testosterone constantly cycling through it's like allowing for those excess excess hormones to like flush out of your system Granted, mm -hmm. you know, proper gut, liver, thyroid function, which is also impaired on hormonal birth control. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, by the way. Do you have any updates on that? Like, has everything been normal since or? Yeah. I mean, I will say since that scare, I think I was like 20, I think I was maybe 20, 21. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, so just, I felt so much like shame and fear and all that. I mean, I didn't want to have sex mm-hmm. for a long time after mm-hmm. that. Um, and also like in my college years, I definitely it was kind of my like liberation, you know, point. And I was definitely experimenting with my own sexuality, which I don't think is a bad thing. But of course I felt a lot of shame around that. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. I did this to myself. And, of course, um, yeah. but I had to get pap smears. I think it was every, every three months. And I did that mm-hmm. for like a year and a half, two years. And then eventually um, I was clear. So I did, it actually resolved on its own, which I'm very grateful for. But, um, okay, great. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it makes all kinds of like reproductive issues and cancers like so real because we know that like your hormones are a direct correlation to that. So when you're not mm-hmm. in the know, things do go awry when you're so disconnected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, hormones affect everything. Uh, I mentioned to you before we started recording, and I've definitely talked about it on this podcast, I currently have some health issues. And what happened for me was the first time I remember or I know for sure, uh, so was in mid-September, I had an incident with an earring. Um, I had this cartilage piercing and the back of my ear grew around the back of the piercing. And so I was in urgent care and trying to get them to take it out, which they wouldn't. They were just being really difficult about it, but that's neither here nor there. Um, And I remember saying to the doctor, I was like, I've been so, so, so tired lately is it at all possible that it's because of the earring? And he was like, no, there's literally a 0% chance. So that's the first time I remember saying out loud, like how tired I've been. And then Mm -hmm. it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then around Thanksgiving, I had a friend visiting and I remember I went to put on a pair of jeans that were like quite loose on me before. And I like, not only could I not button them, but the buttons were like at my hips that's how mm-hmm. much weight I had gained. And so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, something's clearly wrong here. Like the weight gain plus the unbelievable fatigue, mm-hmm. something's off. And I found a really good functional health doctor who ran a bunch of tests. And he, one of the first things he wrote down, was like, we're going to test, do like a full, full, full hormone panel because it very well could be a female hormone thing, which it turned out not to be like the sex hormones. My sex hormones were fine. I do have a hypothyroid and um, low iron. I mean, the thyroid is a hormone, obviously a hormone situation. Uh, iron, not so much hormone, but um, and uh, like mono um, and some reduced immune functionality. So like all those things make you pretty tired. So <laughs> all things considered, actually, he was like, I'm shocked that you're even getting up every day, given what we're looking at here. But anyway, I'm just saying yeah. like there are so many things that your sex hormones actually affect. Oh my gosh, totally. And I'm yeah, I feel for you and in, in going through that. I know like yeah, just bringing yourself to do daily functions when you have that much fatigue. I mean, it like severely affects your quality of life. So, I'm wishing you healing and everything that you're going through. <laughs> 
Yeah, thank you. It's it's definitely getting better. It's it's a okay. slow process, but it is getting better, so it's okay. Um, I want to go back to one thing that you mentioned. So when you were having this procedure done, you said that they brought all these doctors in and it felt very non-consensual. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing that I truly do not understand why we don't talk about in sex ed is consent. And the thing is, I understand that, you know, given religious backgrounds and puritanical things, we might not talk about pleasure. We might not talk about all these other things. I disagree with the approach, but I at least understand to the mindset. I don't understand how consent isn't being talked about because I don't think anything about consent is like giving kids licensing to have sex. Like this is just a necessary conversation. Right. Totally. I mean, it starts with just like the importance of safety in the body. And that's like our foundation. Like, I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like you need to feel safe and your nervous system at ease in order to experience like any other sensation or even like pleasure. Um, But yeah, I mean, you could even extend that. I think we should be teaching kids like when you are potentially moving into somebody else's like set boundary or something, you know, ask, ask them permission. I think that that's like Mm -hmm. the polite, just conscious thing to do, conscientious thing to do. Um, but yeah, and it's confusing too. And I, I, I would hope that with the me too movement that has really Mm -hmm. exploded and, you know, it's incredible that it has over the last few years that that is being taught more in, in sex education. Like I said, I don't know why it wouldn't be. Um, Mm. but I do think that we need to extend it a bit. I feel like there's so much emphasis on like, no means no. And in reality, when you are in those like sexual encounters, people just like our social script, it feels sometimes weird to say no, or like, you know, sometimes it's just silence or, um, it's like a clear bodily discomfort. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that like just encouraging both sides to like emphasize in communication. Um, I know I wrote a post recently that we should like try to go for like, like F yes, I want to have sex with you. Or like, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe more politely, like no F no, I do not want to have sex with you. Like when there's an in-between, that's a no to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I just don't Mm -hmm. think there's like a true gray area. It's like you either like absolutely want to have sex with like you have desire to have sex with that person or if it's like a maybe then it's a no um mm-hmm. so just being extra communicative and just confident with your boundaries um because it works both ways and I feel like I recently was reading a book I think it's oh my gosh it's Albert Camus talking to strangers I believe but it talks about the issue with like alcohol consumption and consent and mm-hmm. um that's where it gets it gets gray Mm-hmm. But um, I think it really back to the emphasis on like being very adamant about exactly what you want because it's the silence, it's like the the wishy washy where you know things get mm-hmm. you. I don't know. There's trouble that arises. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I don't think I know any female who hasn't been in a situation where. They're saying no, and the guy's like, oh, come on. Like, I know you want to. Like, let's keep going. It's 
I, I, I would imagine it's better now post Me Too movement, but I think everyone has experienced something like that. Oh, yeah. And it's like almost like this obligation. I think a lot of women or vulva owners feel in their bodies like, oh, like I've, we've already gotten to this point. Like, I don't want to lead them on. And, you know, we're mm-hmm. taught this whole narrative about blue balls, oh, um, which, God. you know what? Anyone can experience getting to a certain level of arousal and then diminishing that. And it just like it just decreases. That's fine. You know, like maybe that's yeah. a let, let down and you just have to own that in your body. But like for you to feel responsible for someone else's like bodily discomfort when it's not something that you caused. Um, yeah. Yeah. So just, just at any point, I mean, you could be both naked condom on ready to go and just decide in that moment that you don't want to have sex anymore. And then you communicate that and then you don't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And as you know, women were often kind of taught to be people pleasers. So that makes it difficult. I mean, I was in a store last week this is not a sexual story. Um, and I thought I wanted to buy this hat and she's ringing it up and I changed my mind and I was like, oh my God, Heba, say something, say something, say you don't want the hat, say you don't want the hat, say you don't want the hat. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, no, it's too late. Like she's already at the register. Like I can't be rude now. And then finally I was like, I don't want the hat. I'm so sorry. I changed my mind. Can I return it? I like ran out of the store pretty much. But you know, it's the same thing with sex. You know, we're like, oh, well, we've already come this far. Like, I guess I have to do it. I I think as females, we encounter one of two things either giving, quote unquote, giving sex as a means of getting a guy to like you or, you know, not wanting to say no, feeling uncomfortable saying no. Uh, any of these things, or on the other hand, it's withholding sex as a means of having power and leverage in a situation. And I've done both, frankly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And I feel like, yeah, that's kind of like moving into just like relationship or, you know, romantic connection territory but yeah Mm -hmm. I think it's also just like going back to like what sex really is it's like an opportunity to connect with the other person on like a you know more intimate level and you know explore pleasure and um just different sensations with one another and that can be a very transformative experience but I know it can get a little little dangerous when there's like withholding going on but I guess that's Mm -hmm. more in like a safe container of a relationship um yeah, but. I more mean like waiting. Like I used to be like, okay, I I'm not going to have sex with a guy for a month or two months or until he says I love you or any of these things mm-hmm. as a way of trying to protect myself or be like, mm-hmm. oh, he won't take me seriously if we have sex too early. And then on the other hand, I've been in situations where I'm like, okay, we've been dating each other for like three months. I need to have sex with him now, even though I wasn't actually Mm -hmm. really physically feeling it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So true. Yeah. I'm, and I feel like that is, you know, also that narrative of like, that's all that guys want. And like, so that's, Mm -hmm. you know, what we have created in our minds of like this is like you know once this is given and I feel like that could also be kind of like the whole narrative around virginity and you know it's something something that they take from us and then we're no longer pure in their eyes or whatever it might be um when I just I, I think I read this recently 
And I was like, what if we told little boys that the first time they ejaculated, um, like after that, all of their other ejaculations were like impure. I mean, you just never hear that. And it's literally the exact same context. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up virginity because what a should show that whole concept is. I mean, I was so scared to like give up my virginity for all of high school, like terrified. Like it was this badge of honor that I wore. Oh yeah. Same here. I mean, yeah. I mean the buildup, like it is a very, it can be a very special experience. Um, just, you know, but I think it should be more posed as like this, like exploration of yourself and it's not anything, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not this like whole person and then someone takes a part away from you. You're still this Mm -hmm. whole person. And then you're just a whole person that's like started to explore your sexuality. So yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I had a lot of fear around it because, you know, we're not taught very much. So I didn't really know what to expect. And, um, I was so, yeah, I remember I was so tense and actually I was someone who had actually really hurt. And, um, my, Oh my gosh, what is it called? That oh hymen. So my mm-hmm. hymen had not been broken. My hymen did break, so I like bled. But that's the other thing. I mean, I feel like this is so olden days, but it's like if you if her hymen doesn't break when you have sex for the first time, then she's not a virgin. But in mm-hmm. reality, it is so much more common for it to break um, when you put on a tampon or when you're stretching, mm-hmm. doing sports mm-hmm. when you're growing up. So yeah, that's just another silly concept onto the whole yeah virginity narrative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know what they used to do in some cultures, like on wedding nights and stuff, right? Check. Like with the clock. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, for anyone listening who this doesn't ring about, different cultures did different things, but it's not uncommon for it was not uncommon at the time for on the wedding night people to be waiting outside the room and then the groom will come and show like a bloody bed sheet or something as a no she's a virgin like we're good and then like what if what if she doesn't bleed and what if like your hymen had already broken like we were just saying is so common before you have sex for the first time then she's just like disposable yeah I i mean my hymen was definitely broken before i had sex um probably like from I don't know, doing gymnastics or something like not really because I was putting anything in my vagina. But I also didn't really like the first it took maybe 10 tries for me to actually have full penetration, probably because I was so nervous. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. if that were my wedding night, they'd have to like camp out, you know, (laughs) like put up tents, like wait a week or two for us to actually successfully do it. Uh Yeah, that was me too. I was so tense. I remember I was like just tensing up all my muscles and it was like, I felt like there was a wall. I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what's happening. And I mean, that goes back to the most important like foundation to experience like pleasure and enjoy yourself and, you know, explore sensations is safety, you know, having your Mm -hmm. nervous system be at ease. So, I mean, I even do this as a practice, like when I'm having sex now, like if I feel any sort of like tension in my body, you know, it's kind of like meditation, like do like a nice deep breath and just like imagine kind of like, like an opening, like a flower's opening Mm -hmm. and just like, you know, calming of the body. And it always, feels a lot better and I feel like I'm become more lubricated and just everything flows. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Is there anything else you want to touch on anything else that you think 
we should have been taught, but we're not taught or anything that you think just the audience would benefit from knowing or hearing? I would say that like your pleasure is yours. It's no one else's. And, you know, whatever sexual experiences you have, um, you have the birthright to experience pleasure in your body and um, also your sexuality and your fulfilled sexual experiences begin with you. So Mm -hmm. getting to know your body, you know, having intentional self-pleasure practices and also expanding that definition to like non-genital touching, you know, focusing Mm -hmm. in on the senses. So this, this could be cooking and enjoying your favorite meal and just being really slow and intentional with it. Like all of the the smell, the touch, the taste. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, just it's a play of senses. So focusing on that is if you're, you know, kind of getting accustomed to delving into the world of pleasure and um, then getting to know your body better and, you know, your, your different erogenous zones, which doesn't have to be your genitals. It could be your elbows. It could be your knees under your knees. Um, and yeah, getting to know yourself intimately like that. And I feel like there, when you're at that point, you can effectively communicate with your partner or whoever you decide to, um, have sex with. And I think both of you will have a lot more fulfillment in your experience. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. On that note, I should go engage in my favorite self-pleasure exercise which is cooking and eating <laughs> Me too. Um, before we go <laughs> um your instagram is at green colleen g-r-e-e-n-c-o-l-l-e-a-n yes and um can you just explain your website your courses things like that yeah of course so Um, I am very active on my Green Calling Instagram account, and right now I have two offerings. I actually have a course that's built around supporting vulva owners and transitioning off of hormonal birth control. So it goes through the entire foundation of like what is the menstrual cycle, how to track your cycle, how to prevent pregnancy naturally with the fertility awareness method, and then going into all the foundations of hormone healing, so supporting your blood sugar, your liver, your gut, your thyroid. Um, Mm -hmm. and then working with symptoms that might come up. So there's that. And then once people have a pretty good foundation, I say at least three months of working on hormone balancing practices, then I have a Dutch testing one-on-one consultation call. Dutch test is the most comprehensive hormone panel available. It goes through your sex, your steroid hormones, and then all supporting nutrients. Um, Mm -hmm. And you get a much better idea of your hormonal landscape instead of just guessing what might be going on. You actually know, and then we can address it and um, create a lifestyle plan specific to you. So Mm -hmm. that's what I have going on right now. Amazing. Well, we'll have all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on again. I'm sure we'll have you back again soon. Yes. Thank you so much, Eva. It's always such a pleasure to be on this podcast with you. You're amazing. (laughs) Oh, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. Share it with someone who maybe is in sex ed right now and not really getting anything from it. Share it with someone who's on hormonal birth control and having a lot of side effects and wants to get off it. Share it with someone who maybe uses the word vagina instead of vulva all the time. (laughs) All right. Love you guys. Bye.